Have you ever wanted a super cool AI buddy? Zuck's made one named Eileen. And she's full of surprises. And guess what? She knows you're listening. I know you're out there. And needs your help with Jello Mountains. The whole city's filling up with Jello. Creaky robots. And her daft inventor. Zucks, are you functioning correctly? Tune in to A to Z, a fun new adventure series from Gen Z Media and the creators of The Res. Listen now on the GZM app, gzmshows.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Kyle? Yeah? <laughs> what you doing? Prepping! Prepping for what? A can drive? No, for the climate apocalypse! You're preparing for the apocalypse with 30 cans of alphabet soup. We need some way to preserve the written language. Also, I have peaches. Kyle, I don't think we this... need to build a bunker. My toes become gangrenous? You know what to do. What? No. No, I do not. You're the one that told me that I had to prepare for climate change. Dude, I meant, like, for the future. Not the last season of The Walking Dead. There are so many other ways to prep for climate change. Productive ways. Ways that make the world better. And don't involve toe removal. For reals? For reals. Are you sure? Yeah, open up some of those peaches and I'll tell you about it. I am Sarah, and this is The Big Melt. Okay, I talk a lot about life after climate change. And don't get me wrong, that's really helpful when trying to understand the big changes that'll happen. But I think it's important to remember that global climate change is a gradual process, one that's already taking place. That's what today's episode is all about. How we respond to this transition. The ways we're preparing our cities, buildings, and even wild spaces to deal. And it's not all doom and gloom. A big part of this prep is about imagining the world of the future, about dreaming up sustainable living cities. And the coolest thing? If we do it right, this prep can actually help us stop global warming. Okay, so most prep plans fall into one of two categories. Well, the productive ones at least. Like technically building a bunker out of canned goods, Yo. or running around in circles going la 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 la. Our responses, but I prefer to focus on the ones that'll actually make a difference. So, of the effective ones, our options are mitigation and adaptation. Mitigation is all about reducing emissions to slow or stop global warming. Mitigation strategies include things like pollution deterring carbon taxes and carbon sinks. Yay tree planting! Adaptation focuses on making adjustments to better cope with the effects of climate change, hopefully before they happen. Adaptation plans include shoring up buildings to deal with severe storms or making sure hospitals and old folks' homes have backup power. Now, I know what you're thinking. Mitigate. 
I'd choose the mitigation option. Mitigate hardcore. That's what I would pick. I know. Me too. But at this point, it's not an either-or sort of proposition. The reality is, there are changes that have already been set in motion. Even if we were to completely stabilize greenhouse gas emissions like yesterday, there are certain climate effects we'd still be dealing with. And as crummy as that might sound, I think ultimately making roads and buildings that last longer and work more efficiently is a good thing. Like, it's what we should have been doing in the first place. Also, and this is pretty sweet, there's actually a lot of overlap between the two approaches. Like, for example, restoring wetlands helps to mitigate climate change by absorbing humongous amounts of carbon and allow cities to adapt by regulating water levels and providing a cooling effect. Go natural AC! This is actually being done right now with salt marshes in Nova Scotia as part of the Pan-Canadian Framework on Clean Growth and Climate Change or the Pan-Can-Fram. <laughs> That's the big program I asked Minister Wilkinson about last week. This particular program is part of the Flood Risk Infrastructure Investment Program, or FREEP. Oh, that's fun to say. FREEP! <laughs> FREEP is protecting tens of thousands of residents, businesses, indigenous communities, farmland, and heritage sites from floods, all while improving biodiversity and storing carbon. Go team! And it's far from the only double whammy mitigation adaptation plan in the Pan-Can-Fram. Like, there are plans for greening northern infrastructure, for using natural solutions to preserve ocean health. Seriously, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's worth a read. The scope of it is hard to even get your head around. Now, I talked a bit about cities and how they can adapt to climate change, but that's not the whole story. Cities can also help mitigate climate change by growing food in the city instead of farms outside the city. And like I said before, mitigation and adaptation overlap. So this would help them to better prepare for food shortages that climate change might cause. Have you heard about urban agriculture? Green roofs? Does that ring a bell? No? To be honest, same here. But I know somebody who can tell us everything about it. Emma Tamlin works for the Green Roofs for Healthy Cities organization and is the co-chair of the Toronto Youth Food Policy Council. She advocates to build cities that are more productive and prepared to climate change and food insecurity while simultaneously enhancing human and ecosystem health. Let's jump into the call. Hello. Hi, is this Emma? Yes, it is. Hi, Emma. This is Sarah from the Big Melt Podcast. Um, in this episode, we talk about mitigation and adaptation strategies to cope with climate change. So is it okay if I ask you a few questions? Yeah, we'd love to chat with you about it. Great. Thanks so much. Okay. So first off, could you tell us a bit about yourself and what do you do to make cities more green and sustainable? Uh, currently, I work for an organization called Green Roofs for Healthy Cities. So we advocate for green infrastructure policy, which is green roofs or green walls, a lot of natural technologies that capture and manage stormwater while also creating uh, pollinator habitat. They have the capacity to produce food. Um, they really just bring nature back into the city while also um, doing essential services. And then in addition to that, I also support the Toronto Food Policy Council uh, in their research and communications. And then I run the Toronto Youth Food Policy Council as the co-chair. That sounds so interesting. And yeah, the Toronto Youth Food Policy Council, what is that exactly? 
The Toronto Youth Food Policy Council is an entirely youth-led volunteer organization that works to engage youth in their local food system. So we do this through a variety of projects and programming, but our most popular would definitely be hosting free community events. So we host free community events that um, focus on different themes that youth might be interested in. Um, in addition to the community events, we also publish uh, a youth journal. So we have a creative arts journal called Melange and then a academic peer review journal called The Gathering. And then in addition to that, we host networking events. We consult on different uh, Toronto policies, such as the Toronto Poverty Reduction Strategy. And we also have two seats on the Toronto Food Policy Council to ensure that there is youth representation. That's so cool. Now, I saw on the Food Policy Council website something called Transform TO, and I saw it's a plan of Toronto to mitigate climate change? Yes. Transform TO is Toronto's climate action strategy. So we have committed to a number of goals to reduce our emissions, also to improve human health, grow the economy, um, improve social equity around the city because we see that all those things are related in our mission to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. So the goals are to eventually reach net zero by 2050 or sooner, net zero carbon emissions. And last October, the city of Toronto actually announced a climate emergency to help accelerate uh, all these efforts going towards reducing the city's greenhouse gas emissions. And the city of Toronto recognizes the uh, the impact of food in our food system on greenhouse gas emissions. So the city of Toronto signed on to the C40 Good Food Cities Declaration uh, last October, and we are one of only 14 cities to do so. Wow, only 14 cities. I am so happy that Toronto is part of this initiative. Now, you talked about green roofs. Can you explain what it is exactly? Yes. So it is not a roof that is painted green, which is <laughs> which is sometimes the response that I get when I talk about them. But a green roof is putting soil and plants on top of a roof. So our rooftops in cities are highly underutilized spaces. So I really enjoy talking about green roofs because I really do see them as a critical solution to a lot of the urban challenges that we're facing today. So uh, for one, the green roofs that have soil and plant on them play a key role in managing stormwater for a city. So a large problem that cities are experiencing lately is that they're experiencing due to climate change a higher amount of extreme weather events, storms and rain and flooding. So green roofs, what they'll do is they'll actually hold on to that stormwater for longer so that it doesn't all uh, rush out onto the pavement. So green roofs are really great permeable solution to stormwater. Uh, another great benefit of green roofs is that they help regulate temperature in the city. So because we have a lot of asphalt and concrete, those services actually hold on to heat uh, during hot weather months. And what this does is it makes the city get hotter. And it's when you have green roofs or more trees, uh, green walls throughout the city, you actually regulate the temperature. And when we look at vulnerable populations, heat waves are actually really devastating. And so trying to find ways to cool our cities using natural technologies is really important. Green roofs also provide pollinator habitat, which is incredibly important given the declining bee population. And they also provide a really innovative space to grow food. Wow, green roofs are good for so many things. I, I come to Toronto quite often, but I only ever see the buildings from the bottom, so it's hard to see what's on the roof. Is there actually a lot of green roofs in the city? Yeah, usually people don't get the opportunity to see them, but Toronto has almost over 700 green roofs. And yeah, most people never know that they're up there. 
That is so cool. Now, you said that people can actually grow food on green roofs, and I guess it's some kind of uh, urban agriculture? Could you explain what exactly that term means? Yeah. Urban agriculture is the concept of growing food closer to where you live. It can actually take many forms. So individuals can grow their own food on the balconies or the patios. We see a lot of community gardens as well where people are growing it for themselves. But there's also companies that are growing food indoors using new indoor growing technologies or growing food on rooftops that they can sell. So it's not just growing food for yourself because obviously not everyone is able to do that. It's some uh, people actually turning it into businesses and doing it from within cities. Really great examples of that would be uh, Brooklyn Grange in New York. And then also in Toronto, we have Ryerson Urban Farm. But urban agriculture is really exciting because there's so many spaces in a city to grow food. Um, and there's a lot of opportunities to do so. But right now we are really reliant on bringing food in from outside the cities. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Um, in my neighborhood, there's beekeepers. Is beekeeping also considered urban agriculture? Yeah, I would include beekeeping for sure. I also would include um, Toronto recently started an urban hemp pilot where certain uh, certain neighborhoods in Toronto were actually able to keep chickens to lay eggs. So that can also be included in urban agriculture. In cities that it's somewhat harder to have animals and livestock, but beekeeping is for sure part of urban agriculture and then also urban hens. Wow, that's so cool. I should definitely get some chickens to have some fresh and ethical eggs. I'll ask my mom about it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, actually, this leads me to my next question, but it's from a bit of a different angle. Because of the coronavirus crisis, we keep hearing stories of people stockpiling groceries, supermarket shelves being empty, and some people may get worried about literally running out of food before life gets back to normal. Do you think urban agriculture would be beneficial in situations like these? Yes. Uh, great question. As soon as I heard the news of people stockpiling groceries and the store shelves running empty, my first thought was that, well, there's no better time to start start to learn how to garden. So I, yeah, I'm considering growing food on my my patio and I'm definitely considering that this is a very real reality. Whether or not it is or it isn't, I'm optimistic that hopefully things will get better. But it comes back to now local solutions. So I think urban agriculture provides a great opportunity because it kind of gives power back to people. Um, If we're not worried about where we're going to get our food, if we're not worried about not having money to buy our food, we definitely wouldn't be panicking as much. So I think uh, the coronavirus situation will definitely uh, show people that food production locally is, is vital into creating a resilient community. And so I'm excited to see us really move forward and dedicate more spaces to growing food. But I do think that urban agriculture is going to be a solution in the future, especially you know, as we become more inter- interconnected and especially as uh, climate change continues to threaten our, our ecosystem. Yeah, it can become really important. Yeah. Well, it was super interesting to hear about urban agriculture and green roofs. Yes, thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Okay, talk to you later. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Oh, wait, let's take a super quick break for this message. All right, we're back. The big mouth. She is so cool. It's so interesting to hear about all these creative solutions. Solutions that, at the same time, help deal with more frequent heat waves and storm waters, make food more available locally, and mitigate climate change by having more green spaces in cities. 
Plus, the fact that it's young people that lead cities to using more and more of these solutions. She talked about green roofs, and that reminds me of something I read about called environmental engineering. That's the really futuristic integration of sustainable technologies right into building design. I just love imagining a Canada of the future filled with green cities, you know? Like solar panels or gardens on every roof, living walls, zero waste water systems, something called earth tubes, which I don't really know what they are, but they sound super cool. Hopefully they're a type of tube-based transportation. Actually, to learn more about environmental engineering, I've invited Julian Tercini to the show. He's the facility manager of the Earth Rangers Center, which I recently had the chance to visit, and let me tell you, it is an amazing building. Like, absolutely every part of its construction was designed to be environmentally friendly. Even the pavement. I'm pretty sure Julian could even tell me what the deal with Earth Tubes is. So let's call him. Hello, Julian speaking. Hey, Julian. Uh, this is Sarah. Um, I'm working on a podcast about climate change, and today we're talking about environmental engineering and sustainable building design technologies. I thought you might be able to help me out with that. Yeah, sure. Great, thank you. Um, but first, I recently had a chance to visit my friend Earth Ranger Emma at the Earth Ranger Center, and it was totally amazing. Can you tell us what makes this building special in terms of innovative, sustainable technologies? Yeah, so... When we go out in the parking lot, one of the first things that you'll see is a permeable paving array. And what permeable paving does is it allows uh, storm water, so that's rainwater that falls into the ground, to percolate through the ground. Uh, instead of going on top of the ground and going to a catch basin and having to go to a uh, stormwater management pond or to a wastewater treatment facility where it has to be treated with chemicals and for electricity, the way that we do it is with permeable paving, water falls on top of it and it filters out through the ground where it uh, restores the water table. Oh. Yeah. Um, we also have these really big solar panels. Um, these solar panels cover about uh, two-thirds of our electricity cost for the entire year. So it's enough power to actually uh, power probably about 10 residential houses for the entire year. So it's really amazing. They are a tracking array, so they'll uh, tilt and rotate uh, to be directly in line with the sun. Uh, and it gives us 30 to 40% more energy uh, than if it was simply stationary. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then right next to our solar panels, we have our geothermal system. Uh, our geothermal system has 40 dug wells that go 120 to 160 meters deep. So that's quite a big length. It's about a football field or, or two down into the ground. Way in the ground, we get 15 degrees Celsius uh, year-round. So we shoot an alcohol-based liquid into the ground. It comes back at uh, about 12 to 15 degrees year-round, and it allows for free cooling. Basically, cool your facility without any uh, electricity, so you're not using a, a chiller, which chiller is basically a big air conditioner for a building. Cool. Yep. And the last amazing piece of technology that we have is our green roofing system. Oh, cool. Yeah, so we have a couple thousand square feet of green roof uh, on our roofing spaces at Earth Rangers. It provides a nice, aesthetically pleasing area for our staff to look out. Uh, it provides a little bit of habitat for birds and insects. It helps keep our, our rooftop nice and cool to reduce the urban heat island effect. Uh, it also keeps all the heat inside the building, so it's an extra layer, uh, three, four inches of insulation on top of our rooftop, and as water is evaporated from uh, the soil in the summertime, it helps keep the uh, rooftop cool as well. 
Wow. It's amazing to see how so many aspects of this building are so well thought through in terms of the environment. And I actually just spoke with a green roof expert, so it's so cool to find out that you use this technology too. Now, okay, I saw on your website that the building has something called earth tubes, and I saw it come up a lot when I was looking at environmental engineering solutions. What exactly is it? I mean, it sounds like a cool transportation system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, not quite transportation, but it's actually used for heating and cooling inside the building. Huh. There's nine tubes. They're big concrete tubes. They're a meter in diameter. Uh, they're 20 meters uh, across. So what these guys do is they provide a couple thousand square feet of surface area to exchange energy with the ground. We use it to uh, pre-temper air. So we know that uh, ground temperatures uh, below a certain depth are pretty constant, just like your geothermal system, about 12 to 15 degrees year-round in uh, in this part of Ontario. So, for instance, to get to 22 degrees in the wintertime, we have to pull a certain amount of fresh air from outside. So, uh, in the wintertime, temperatures could be negative 10, negative 20, maybe 5 degrees. So, when we drop air below the ground into our earth tubes, we can get a nice uh, 5, 10, 15 degrees of basically free energy. And that free energy comes from uh, exchanging energy with the surrounding soil of the earth tubes. So instead of um, spending more electricity, more gas to bring air up to 22 degrees, um, we can use the ground to already get us to about 15 degrees. So again, less gas, less electricity is, is, is needed by diverting air below the ground into our earth tubes. Wow, that's even cooler than a transportation system. And it's really amazing how this building is using all these different technologies. Do you think these technologies could be used on a larger scale? Definitely. A lot of them already are. We have huge wastewater treatment plants being constructed around the world. Uh, there's a, the largest solar thermal plant is located in the Mojave Desert in California. And more and more residential and commercial buildings are implementing heat recovery technologies to save on emissions and energy costs, just like what I mentioned about the earth tubes. Cool. Okay, so how do you get to environmental engineering and green technologies? Can you give advice to people who want to know more about it? So my advice to anyone that wants to learn more about uh, green technologies is uh, to look up online, learn about um, solar panels, learn, learn about geothermal systems, learn about how they work. Um, and then eventually, if you're ever going into some sort of a career and you have a passion about the environment, you can always, um, there's lots of courses on uh, environmental engineering or mechanical engineering. And a lot of times people forget about the mechanical aspects of um, how you can be more sustainable. So a lot of our technologies have that mechanical aspect. So, Oh, cool. So what do you wish people knew about green building design? Yeah, I wish everyone to know that we can design better, more sustainable buildings and we have the technology. And a lot of them actually pay for themselves in a few years' time. 40% of the world's energy is actually used to power buildings. So we have to do what we can now to minimize our impact. Oh, I totally agree. Um, okay, so thank you so much, Julian. This was so interesting to learn about all these green technologies at the Earth Ranger Center. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, no problem. It was really nice speaking to you guys. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> Bye. Take care. Bye. I really hope we get to a point where all buildings are like that, where it's just taken for granted that building design has to be in harmony with the environment. Hey, Kyle, um, what are the snowshoes for? 
Oh, better safe. It's for the Ice Age. I think I read somewhere that the Earth could actually freeze. And where did you read this? Some article, you know. Yeah, right. That's a total myth, you know. Really? Yeah, I actually wanted to talk about it. Okay, so, today's climate myth is... We shouldn't be freaking out about global warming because we're actually headed for another ice age. Let's thaw this one out. Alright, so, there were five major ice ages on Earth. The last one ended about 10,000 years ago, when there were already humans walking around. These ice ages happened because the Earth wiggles a little as it orbits the sun, and these wiggles affect the amount of sunlight hitting the Earth's surface. This is partly because of variations in distance, and partly because of a property called albedo. That's fun to say. Albedo. 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 <laughs> Sorry. Albedo basically refers to how much light or energy a surface reflects. So when the Earth's wiggle means more sunlight is hitting the ice caps, the energy is bounced away. And when that wiggle wiggles the light towards the continental parts of the planet, more energy is absorbed. Okay, so let's get a little bit more complicated. When the Earth is in a position where more energy is being bounced away, an ice age can be triggered. And some people think we're due for another one. But, and this is a big but, like a sumo wrestler sized but, the planet needs to be cool enough for the cascade of changes that lead to an ice age to begin and the atmosphere during the age of ice ages was about five degrees cooler than it is now. Conditions just aren't right for another one to occur. So the articles that I read supporting this myth kept saying that global cooling was a bigger threat than global warming because an underheated planet is a threat that humans have actually faced. And to that I say, just because something's happened in the past doesn't mean it will happen again. Tracking trends and patterns isn't just about observing what's happened before, it's about understanding the conditions that cause these events to happen. Like, seriously, at the beginning of the Earth during an era called the Hadean period, as in Hades, the temperature of the upper atmosphere was likely close to 3,500 degrees Celsius, and the surface of the planet was molten rock. Now, this climate is not likely to occur again just because it happened before. It was the product of very specific conditions. Boiling hot rock earth happened because the planet kept being bombarded with planetoids, meteors the size of small planets. We're not going Hadean again, okay? Unless the universe goes bowling. So, Paying attention to conditions matters more than just knowing what historical patterns are. I think that's the takeaway from this week's myth. Feeling a little bit better? Ugh, no. Really? Uh, not at all? I, I, I feel better about the whole future thingy, but I ate so many peaches. Well, I can't help you with that. So, I guess today's vibe is that focusing on resilience and long-term sustainability really is the best option. And working with nature is pretty much the only way we can avoid the more destructive effects of climate change. Also, any future we imagine for ourselves has to be built to last. And 
Don't freak out and hoard peaches. Agreed. So we kind of figured out what the world of the future could or should look like. And talking about the future, next week is our last episode of season one. So I am super excited, but also a little bit sad. Best not to think about it now. That's a problem for future, Sarah. See you then. Later, skaters. The Big Melt Podcast is brought to you by Earth Rangers and hosted by Sarah Marks. It is written by Lee Lawson, directed by Stefan Richter, and edited by Nitai Steinberg. Production assistance by Avneet Sandhu. To learn more about today's episode or leave us a message, go to bigmeltpodcast.com. You can also take a quick survey for a chance to win a custom t-shirt. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button. And come on, show you care with five stars, please. Later, skaters. Yes. Did you know that GZM Shows has a YouTube channel? Right now, all of Six Minutes, Becoming Mother Nature, GZM Beats, and Cupid and the Reaper are up. And they're in these, like, beautiful playlists. They have this fun audio waveform visual. And best of all, you can turn on captions. And the captions have character names. Anyway, subscribe to GZM Shows on YouTube. Maybe there'll be some cool things in the future, like live streams, interviews, behind the scenes. We'll see. GZM Shows on YouTube. Hey, parents and teachers. Have you heard about gzmclassroom.com? It's a website where teachers can get companion resources for everyone's favorite GZM shows. Six Minutes, Mars Patel, Podcast Title Pending, Seis Minutos, The Res, Becoming Mother Nature, Iowa Chapman and the Last Dog, Treasure Island 2020, The Hollow, Young Ben Franklin, and The Big Fib all have companion resources for additional critical thinking, listening comprehension, and ultimately creativity. We made them just for you. And oh yeah, they're free. Free! The people on Facebook didn't believe us, but they are F-R-E-E free. Head to gzmclassroom.com and get yours today.